This week on the Elucidators Decoding Global News, we take a brief detour to one of the nastier places in modern politics, the far right. Right-wing extremists, ranging from anti-government militias to neo-Nazi parties, have been increasingly vocal in the United States and Europe in recent years. And this year's chaos seems to have kicked extremist activity up another notch. Who are these people? Where are they active? What do they believe? And most importantly, how dangerous are they? Stay tuned for some answers. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Elucidators. As always, I'm your host, Steve Halley. With me, as per usual, is my co-host, Pete Newsom. How you doing, Pete? You're looking, you're looking good over there. Thanks, buddy. I appreciate that. Yeah. I, um, I'm feeling all right. I feel like I'm doing all right. So, yeah. You're, you're in the pink. And by over there, I mean like eight miles from here, but um, just <laughs> over on Zoom on my monitor. Yeah, I think I can see the oaks of Sherman Oaks off in the distance. The oaks. Way over there. <laughs> yeah. That's right. They're really tall. Yeah. So we're going to open up this week with a listener question. Nice. We love these. Yeah. As always, you can send them in to Facebook. You can look for us on Facebook. Just search for The Elucidators. Or you can email us at theelucidators, all one word, at gmail.com. And we will do our darndest to answer your question. This question is from Jacob. Wondering about the prospects of the European Union, because he, he heard our Brexit episode and, and had some thoughts. Jacob asks, what are your hypotheses on, one, strengthened EU, and or two, a weakened EU over the next generation? And to me, Pete, that's just a mental playground. Mm, well, yeah. let's swing on those swings and jump on that merry-go-round. And the monkey bars, like, that's, that's just a beautiful question. Thank you, Jacob. Beautiful. Yeah, what I like about it so much is he asks for multiple hypotheses and he gives me an end or. And that affords me the opportunity to go with one and two, strengthened and weakened over the course of the next generation. Covering all your bases. That's right. That's what we do here in international relations. We say as much as possible without actually taking a stand on anything. <laughs> That's right. Leave no base uncovered. That's right. <laughs> it could be this, or it could also be this, or maybe kind of both. I'm going to say kind of both. I'm going to say, one thing I do know is that the EU is unlikely to stay the same. I forget which notable EU leader slash founder said this, but he basically compared the EU to a shark in that it needs to keep moving or die. So stasis is not a good look for the EU. What's more likely over the next generation, in my opinion, is that it will become stronger and weaker at the same time. Paradox. And I'll unpack that a little bit. But before I do that, I want to get into some data because public opinion data is just a lot of fun if you're a political scientist. There's something called the Eurobarometer in the European Union. What do you suppose that does, Pete? It measures the barometric pressure in all the EU countries at once and then combines it into one number. Nailed it. Yeah, no, uh, that is not what the Eurobarometer does. It, what it does is it takes the temperature of the European public on a range of issues every single year. And 
one of the things the Eurobarometer talks about or asks about is sentiment about the European Union. And so I dove into the most recent complete results, which are from last year, 2019, and the Eurobarometer data reveals, or rather, it does not reveal overwhelming support for the European Union. However, it does reveal that a strong majority in a large majority of member states are either indifferent towards or supportive of membership. So, uh, you know, we're talking 60, 70, 80%. And there are 27 member states here. So there's a lot of heterogeneity, meaning there's a wide range. You have Greece on the one end, and you have a lot of the Baltics and Nordic countries on the other end. It's basically how this, this shakes out. But most member states, people either don't care that much or they're all for it. Only a minority are like, no, I don't like it. Generally speaking, support for the European Union skews younger, which is always what you want to see when you're moving forward into the future. The big exceptions, as I mentioned previously, are in Greece and in the UK, which no longer matters because the UK is exiting the European Union at the end of this year. And if you want to know about that, go back and listen to our previous episode about Brexit. Another interesting point is that support for the European Union usually runs five to 10 points ahead of the individual European national governments in terms of public support. So in practically every country, the European Union is actually more popular than that country's national government. (laughs) (laughs) When you sort of combine Europeans together in one big 500 million strong mass, Europeans think that the EU promotes peace, democracy, and transparency. All good things, all of which it was designed to do explicitly at the end of World War II. However, they also think that it is intrusive, inefficient, and doesn't understand the needs of its citizens. And there's an interesting tension here between thinking that the EU promotes democracy while also saying that it doesn't understand the needs of its citizens. Most people feel that way about their government, though, and democracies, I get the sense of. Yes, especially right now, right? (laughs) Yeah. It's like, this is just the way things are. There are worse forms of government. I don't love mine. It doesn't really understand what I need, but more things are good than are bad. That is well said. That's exactly right. And most people just kind of don't think about it that much. They're busy with the day-to-day. And in fact, when you drill down into what Europeans are most worried about, the two things that come up constantly are immigration, number one, and pocketbook issues, number two. So you have these identity issues that are linked to economic issues. Because in politics, what generally happens is immigration is linked to whether or not there will be enough jobs for the people that already live in the particular country. And this is a false dichotomy because economists will tell us that immigration actually creates jobs in the long run. But normal people don't necessarily believe that over the short run. When you add all this up, what does this tell us? It tells us that in general, the EU is just a normal part of governance across Europe at this point. It's been around in something similar to its current form since about 1992. That's a long time. 
And if you're young and you grew up in an EU country, you've never known anything else. It's very natural to be able to go anywhere in Europe, no problem, live anywhere in Europe, get a job anywhere, and spend your euros. Big exception is the right-wing populists in Europe dislike it. In countries like Germany or Sweden, we have the Alternative for Deutschland Party in Germany, and the Sweden Democrats in Sweden respectively propose referenda on EU membership. So trying to pull a Brexit in these countries. Mm, like but, a Grexit or a Swexit? Yeah, Swexit, exactly. That's pretty good. But the thing is, these parties are out of power. They're not particularly close to gaining power. Alternative for Deutschland is much closer than the Democrats. Uh, they've actually been in the government, but not in the lead. And it doesn't seem likely that they will be there anytime soon. We'll talk about them a little bit later in the show. So they can't even get into the government or run a government, let alone win a referendum on something like this. And on top of this, demographic trends seem to be in the EU's favor, at least right now, because young people prefer it more than older people do. So over time, if that stays the same, more or less, you can assume that support for the EU will rise slowly. So that's all on the positive part of the ledger. On the negative part of the ledger, the EU is about to lose the UK, which hurts a lot. This is like the United States losing Texas from an economic perspective. The UK was one of the two major military powers in the European Union, the other being France. So what little military power the Europeans had has basically been cut in half. Outside of NATO, that is. The UK is still in NATO. So that's a real loss. And we shouldn't act like it's not a big deal. It's, it is a big deal. And on top of this, it's possible, although currently unlikely, that Greece or even Italy could be next. If Greece goes, not that big of a deal. If Italy goes, that's pretty devastating because Italy is, <laughs> believe it or not, still a top 10 economy in the world. The thing is, though, what is about to happen to the United Kingdom as a result of Brexit should make leave sentiment elsewhere a lot less popular because the UK, I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, is about to have a really bad time economically <laughs> as a result of Brexit. Right. They're going to lose either 3.1 or 3.9% yeah, over the course of 10 GDP. years. Yeah, <laughs> Neither one is great. It's not great. I think that barring some miracle or something that every reputable economist in the world has missed, the British are about to see that they've been sold a bill of goods on Brexit as far as the economy goes. I think that some number of British people don't care about that and they still want Brexit, even incurring that type of economic damage. But you know, watching the UK get poorer, if you're in Greece or Italy, I think will change at least some people's minds because <laughs> it's, it's not going to be good. Yeah. Uh, on top of this, the EU came through with a big COVID bailout this year that has helped buttress pro-EU opinions in these countries that have been suffering, like Greece or Italy. And the bottom line is, as long as Germany and France are on the same page, I think the EU will endure. And there seems to be a pretty strong consensus between those two countries, the number one and number two powers remaining in the European Union, 
to do what is necessary to keep the EU moving forward. And they will pay to, to subsidize it. And particularly Germany is now writing checks to subsidize the poorer countries in the European Union. That's what happened earlier this year with the COVID bailout, effectively. As Germany, the Netherlands, uh, the Nordics, Denmark, and so on. The rich Northern Europeans, led by Germany. Um, thinking a little bit further out, will we see a scenario where the EU kind of pulls together into a real state instead of a supranational organization or an alliance or something like that and replace the United States as the liberal superpower? Well, probably not right now because I don't think that there's a sufficient threat to the European countries that can unify them. The Eastern Europeans are really worried about Russia, but France considers Russia a potential ally. And that makes it tough <laughs> to form, you know, a tighter EU to resist Russian influence, for instance. Even the Germans are trying to buy energy from the Russians and, and sell them goods. So there, there's a lot of ambivalence within the European Union towards Russia. Same goes with China. Also, China is really far away. If the United States persists on its temporarily illiberal path and Russia and China grow stronger over time, if the USA abandons NATO, for instance, and continues with tariffs on European countries and generally acts like it is no longer an ally of, of the European countries while Russia and China get stronger, then we could see the European Union really start to pull together into a state-like entity. So thanks again, Jacob, for your excellent question. And we're going to move to our main topic of the week. Pete, where are we this week? This week, Steve, we're taking a quick visit to a deeply unpleasant and increasingly dangerous part of the political spectrum, the far right. Ooh, spooky. Eh, yeah, spooky, terrible, whatever. Um, it's all bad. It's all bad. Yeah. Unfortunately, uh, right-wing extremists have been in the news in several Western democracies over the last several months. Yeah, not good. Yeah, in our own country, in the United States. Last week, 12 right-wing terrorists, domestic terrorists, were arrested after plotting to kidnap Governor Gretchen Whitmer of uh, Michigan. I think I read about that. That is a crazy thing. Yeah, that was some front-page stuff. Um, yeah. These guys, uh, and they were all guys in this case, mm -hmm. met over the course of months and actively planned to kidnap Gretchen Whitmer. Yes, I believe that they surveilled her summer home. They did. They, I guess, laid in the forest near her vacation house with binoculars and looked at it or something yeah. weird. And apparently one of them was even agitating to break in and kidnap her during the period of time that they were doing surveillance, which obviously leads me to think she was there at the time. Yes. Like I haven't seen that clarified in too many of the things that I've read about this, but I think it means to say that she was actually in the vacation house and they were somewhere, you know, a couple hundred feet away looking. Yeah. So they, they talked there. to that dude down, maybe because the informant was there. I'm not sure. <laughs> there was an FBI informant embedded with these guys. But the plan was to grab her and take her to Wisconsin for quote unquote trial. Now, what do you suppose that means? I think in their minds, in their minds, they may actually think 
that there's some chance that she would be found not guilty. I think they consider <laughs> themselves a legitimate enough entity to like do a fair trial. I guess but if there's the 12 idea, guys, there's 12 guys, that's a yeah, jury, right? 12 angry men, that's all you need. <laughs> yeah. But the idea, obviously, in their mind is that their authority supersedes any other government authority in the United States because yes. they are, they've pledged allegiance to the Constitution above all, which has some language about defending the country from enemies, both foreign and domestic. Uh-huh. And in their minds, I guess, Governor Gretchen Whitmer represents a domestic threat. A tyrant, in fact, for her actions during uh, the COVID pandemic, right, Pete? That's right. She's telling people they need to wear masks. And uh, these guys are saying, no, we don't. Yeah. Not just masks, also shutting down businesses. Yeah, um, true. Uh, and that's potentially a much actually bigger part of the populist anger against that policy. Yeah, I think so. People, you know, people's businesses have closed and that's economically painful. Devastating, and, yeah. Uh, I certainly don't mean to downplay the importance of that, but this is uh, some pure insanity that these guys are proceeding with. A bridge and a staircase and a skyscraper too far. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well put, yeah. Yeah, so that's the United States we have another story coming at us from Germany where the government revealed over this past summer that several of its security and military services are infected by right-wing extremists, some of whom have been apparently been stealing ammunition and explosives and stockpiling it for a so-called quote-unquote day zero event where they're going to basically take down the government. And these are soldier, active duty soldiers in the German military? Correct. Who like and sworn allegiance to the country or? Germans special forces unit, I think also active duty army and perhaps some of the police forces as well. There have been a couple studies by the interior ministry basically uncovering this sort of activity. And it sounds pretty bad, basically. The, the bottom line is that we'll get into it more, but the problem is much deeper than the Germans have acknowledged to this point. Yeah, the number of soldiers and military service members who have either been radicalized or were already right-wing extremists when they entered is large. Yes. There are a lot of them. Yes, there are a lot of them. And, you know, Germany doesn't have the largest armed forces in the world for obvious reasons, but it is a very capable military. And so these guys have access to real hardware and they know how to use it. And they know how to steal it, apparently. Yeah, like they've, you know, some of them have probably served abroad, less so in the Middle East, but perhaps in Afghanistan, stuff like that. That's Germany, kind of troubling. And That's Germany. And then we go to Greece. Right. Where last week, an openly neo-Nazi political party called the Golden Dawn that had earned 21 seats in Greece's parliament in 2015 was declared a criminal organization by a court after members participated in several murders. It took five years of legal proceedings to get this neo-Nazi party declared a criminal organization. Right. And that was five years of some anti-fascist people and organizations working very hard, basically swimming against a tide that was sort of accepting Golden Dawn as just the new status quo. 
I mean, they had 21 seats in the in the parliament. Yeah, they were the third largest party in Greece by representation at one point, I believe. And keep in mind that this comes after the Greek economy crashed and burned in a really serious way. About 10 years ago during the Eurozone crisis, the government was completely destabilized and there was blood in the streets between extreme right and extreme left forces, not unlike what happened prior to World War II in Germany during the Weimar Republic. Like people were looking at this and they were like, oh, Golden Dawn, we've seen this movie before. Sure, it's like the standard recipe for extremist groups getting political power. Exactly. You you end up in parliament and then, you know, you have an election and you gain seats and then you have a state of emergency and you take over and then you shut down parliament and then you have World War II if you're Germany. If if you're Greece, you probably don't have World War III because Greece is a lot smaller. It's uh, it's troubling (laughs) to be sure. Um, Of course, that didn't happen to Golden Dawn. Golden Dawn actually lost support. And the Greeks came back from the abyss and are now actually in fairly decent shape, especially compared to where they're coming from, which was the abyss, basically. Sure. But it needs to be said, and perhaps we'll speak more about it later, but just because Golden Dawn got shut down, that doesn't mean that the factors that led to them becoming powerful or rising are gone. The people who supported Golden Dawn in Greece are probably still open to supporting another nationalist party. Yeah. And in fact, a lot of ex-Golden Dawn members have joined similar parties or founded similar parties. So a little bit of a -a whack-a-mole situation, as you said earlier. Exactly. Yeah. It's it's very difficult to permanently get rid of these guys. (laughs) (laughs) And in fact, pretty much impossible. Um, It's impossible. They hovered around 1% support from their inception in 1980 until... 2012, 2015, somewhere in there. So the question is, is there a way to force them back into being a very small minority politically? Yeah, and there are different sort of orders of thought about that. One order of thought is the German way of doing things, which is to make neo-Nazism literally illegal. So, (laughs) Except for the thousands of soldiers that are secretly neo-Nazis in your army. (laughs) Well, so a lot of those guys are going to get prosecuted. Yeah, no. like I'm being flippant and I should go on. Yeah, no, they take it really seriously. And if you own Nazi paraphernalia, that's a crime. If you give a Nazi, well, I don't know how often it's prosecuted, but Nazi salutes, I think, are technically a crime. Certain types of rhetoric has been criminalized. Like Mm -hmm. they have free speech except in these types of areas, right? Where they actually don't have free speech. Right. Germany is such a unique situation with their particular history. Exactly. And then you have sort of the American approach, which is you can be a Nazi. I guess that's the Greek approach as well. You know, you can advocate genocide. That's something Mm -hmm. you can do. You can deny the Holocaust. In, in either of these countries. You can't do that in Germany without... Yeah, but all the way up until about the last couple of years, you could do that, but you were going to have less than 1% support in anything you tried to do. You were, were going to be, be ostracized, right? <laughs> fully ostracized. You were not yeah. popular if that was your stance. Yeah, and I think it, it, that's still the case. The question is, well, are you at 1% or are you now at 5 or 10%? And there's actually a really big difference between 1% and 
Yeah. Yes. It's 10% is still a small minority, but it means that you have fellow travelers and it means that you have a society of your own uh, that's a lot bigger than your clubhouse, right? Or sure. whatever it is you're doing. And even if you have, say, 5% popularity generally, who knows what that means or how that would be measured. If you also have representation in a legitimate way in the government, yes, that's a different level of influence. 100%. So, Pete, I think maybe we should talk a little bit about what the far right is mm-hmm. in terms of who these people are and what they actually believe because it's it's not necessarily straightforward. It depends. It depends on the country. But generally speaking, the political far right in Western democracies share a few attributes. If you want to talk about demographics, they skew number one, white, number two, male, number three, Gen X or younger. So about the oldest, you're going to see most of these guys are in their 50s in most cases. Hmm. There are definitely some older clansmen and stuff like this, but this is this is more a young man's game. Number four, gun enthusiasts, especially in the United States. Yeah, it's an important one in the US. Yeah. So it's that may be the most important in the US. Yeah. Gun rights and the perceived threat of the government taking people's guns away is the number one motivating factor. Yeah. For far right people in the US. When we say enthusiasts, we mean enthusiasts, people that own multiple and varied firearms, in addition to body armor, military paraphernalia, the whole nine yards. Sure. People who say that the right to bear arms is the one that protects all the other rights. Yes, that's right. And when you look at education or class, the patterns are a lot less clear because in some cases, depending on the organization, like if you're talking about the Klan, for instance, you're going to get probably lower education, lower class. But a lot of far-right organizations are now recruiting on college campuses somewhat successfully. Because they've sort of emerged from the shadows and have mainstream legitimacy, unfortunately. Yeah, in in some places. You know, on a lot of college campuses, they've been run out of town. (laughs) You know, it really depends what campus in what part of the country. And there's also an emphasis on recruitment from military and police forces, which kind of makes sense because certainly don't want to paint with too broad a brush, but you may have people with right-wing political sensibilities in larger numbers in military and police organizations. And that's, you know, I don't mean that in a pejorative way. It's just factually true. Yes, it's, it's objectively true. Yeah, and it's been measured as such. That is, I, again, I want to be clear here. We're not saying that police and military are far-right organizations. They are not. But they may contain far-right elements in larger numbers proportionally. This is true. Yeah. So what do they believe? So members of far-right organizations tend to consider the current government illegitimate and reject its institutions, along with small-l liberal democracy. So this idea that everybody should get to vote and the government of the United States is legitimate constitutionally and we should obey what the government tells us to do, especially, you know, alphabet soup organizations like the FBI, ATF, CIA and so on. A lot of these guys 
want to get rid of all of that, <laughs> basically. And some of them want to go back to something much simpler. In some cases, no federal government, right? They only want local government or even no government at all. Libertarian. In other cases, they want to go the other direction and establish a dictatorship. So lots and lots of government. They can have either libertarian or authoritarian inflections. But the, the commonality is that they don't really believe in liberal democracy. And they quite often think that once things are the way they ought to be, the only people living where they live will be white. Yeah, that is often the case. I think more often than not, there are some far-right movements that are explicitly anti-racist, but they are in the clear minority. Yes, they're really uh, not the majority, and no. <laughs> they're <laughs> noteworthy for that very reason. Yeah. The United States and Germany have both militia and sovereign citizen movements. So that's the first type of group. That's the libertarian group. It's the, I'm a sovereign citizen, only my local sheriff has constitutional authority to tell me what to do. And this is an argument that has been made recently in the United States. Like uh, the rancher Cliven Bundy, right? Who would not get off of federal land. He was grazing on federal land, if I remember correctly. He was just um, munching that grass on federal land. It was, it was the public domain. That's exactly <laughs> what happened. And there's a far right, I don't know if you'd call it a militia, but a group called the Oath Keepers. Yeah. And they rolled up, right? They rolled up to uh, defend Cliven Bundy. Yes. I believe that's his name. This rancher who was claiming the right to graze his cattle on federal land. This was during the Obama administration, I believe. I believe that is true, yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's the one form. It's the libertarian form. And then there's the other form, which is the neo-Nazi group, which is, yes, we're going to have a government. We're going to have a leader of that government. It will not be a democracy. It will be authoritarian. And we're going to kill or otherwise expel, get rid of people who don't look and act like us. So it's the militant authoritarianism and fascism. So strange bedfellows, right? You have the libertarians on one end and the Nazis on the other end, and they come together to fight the government in some yeah, cases. Yeah, I think in a lot of ways, what the libertarians want line up with what the neo-Nazis want in more Certainly ways. Certainly right they're now. They're not polar opposites by any means. No, but they're... So, yes, in the short run... I agree with that. They want to bring down the government of the United States and replace it with nothing or fascist dictatorship, depending oh, on. Or they just want Donald Trump to win again. The Oath Keepers just want Trump to win. I mean, and if he does, <laughs> I don't think they're going to be trying to overthrow the presidency. Yeah, well, he's carrying a lot of their water. So that's a fair point. Yeah. Another commonality is a strong emphasis on political violence, which can range from street fighting to lone wolf terrorist attacks. And we've seen many of these. Yeah, since what, was it uh, June or July with the protests that were kicked off in response to the murder of George Floyd? Yes, um, that's right. We've seen quite a few conflicts in the streets. Yeah. Some have been uh, fatal. Yes. Some have involved deaths but they have been conflicts between these various right-wing groups and people who are protesting police brutality, et cetera. 
Mm-hmm. That's right. As far as lone wolf terrorist attacks goes, there have been quite a few of these in the United States and elsewhere. Uh, there was the El Paso shooting, right-wing extremist who went out to kill people of Mexican extraction and did in large numbers. We've had a synagogue shooting, which I think is another 11 deaths. These are typically mass shootings. The first right-wing or far-right lone wolf terrorist attack was Timothy McVeigh. Oklahoma City. 1995, thanks. Yes, thank you. And a lot of these guys have taken inspiration from that. In addition to other really notable quote-unquote success stories like Anders Breivik killing into the dozens of people in Norway. Yeah, to swing it briefly back to Timothy McVeigh, he was a member of a movement known as the Patriot Movement in the early 90s in the US. Yep. And that was sort of a grouping of these militias, anti-government militias, that lost steam after the Oklahoma City bombing. Right. They were gaining popularity and there was sort of a dip in their influence and their numbers after the Oklahoma City bombing. Because people were so horrified. Yeah. So things like the Oath Keepers and similar groups are like the successors uh, to the Patriot Movement and are actually, I, do, I think they consider themselves to be under that umbrella. Yeah. Perhaps. I think there, there's uh, some of the older Oath Keepers were probably active in the Patriot movements. Right. So you were talking about the Anders Brevik. Yeah, Anders Brevik. So Anders Brevik was this guy in Norway who hated leftists. He hated uh, the socialist government in Norway, letting in what he felt to be too many immigrants. And he resolved to change the country's trajectory by murdering, I think... It was over 50, but under 100 people. I don't remember exactly how many. It was a mass shooting at a youth camp for the Socialist Political Party, which I think was on an island. And it was. He, he planned this for a period of years, I think. He did. He set some sort of distraction on the mainland. Yeah. I believe it was an explosion. Right. That drew attention. And then he took a boat, if I'm not mistaken, to this island and methodically shot 70-plus, mostly teenagers. Is that correct? Yeah. And he wrote a manifesto, which is something you do before doing this. All these guys have written manifestos and posted them on the internet if they haven't actually live-streamed the attacks, which is a new thing. And we'll get to that. Um, there haven't been too many coordinated terrorist attacks yet. It's mostly been lone wolf, which is interesting. One has to assume that coordinated terrorist attacks are next. And perhaps this plot against the Michigan governor would have been one of the first. Mm -hmm. um, certainly in the era of left-wing terrorism, which in this country and in Europe stretched from about 1960 to 1980, you had a lot of left-wing terrorist groups like the Bader-Meinhof gang, the Weather Underground, that conducted... Bank robberies, shootings, bombings, kidnappings, and so on. But you haven't really seen too much of that with the far right yet. So, yeah, so this foiled attempt to kidnap Governor Whitmer is an yeah. example of that would have been maybe one of the first good examples right. of like a coordinated right wing attack. Yeah. And it's interesting that the FBI was able to infiltrate that. You sort of have to like give them props for 
having an informant in some weird meeting in a basement that you get into with a trapdoor in the basement of a vacuum cleaner repair shop. <laughs> yes, that's where bizarre. they were doing their, you know, this plotting. Yeah, it is crazy. Here's what I'll say. I think the FBI has gotten really good at infiltrating groups since 2001 in particular. Hmm. To this point, a lot of these groups have been in and around mosques because they have been looking for jihadists, Islamic terrorists. Hmm. And they've been looking for foreign plots and domestic Muslims that have been radicalized. It's a lot easier to infiltrate a group. So that could be another reason why we're not seeing a lot of coordinated attacks yet. Mm. Other commonalities, far-right extremists are nativist and anti-immigrant at an absolute minimum. I think there are a handful of exceptions, like among the Boogaloo boys, perhaps. But I think basically 95-plus percent of these guys could be called nativists. That's at a minimum. Sure. At maximum, they are openly and proudly racist. <laughs> so, yeah. Being strongly anti-immigrant usually equates to being racist. It's just the logical endpoint. I think so. I think so. As as much as, you know, people will resort to sophistry to try to get around that. It's it's always the economic argument, you know. It's like, well, we don't have enough jobs, so we need to shut down the borders. And look, the borders should be controlled politically. That is a, an appropriate subject for politics, right? And totally closed borders, you know, we've never had completely closed borders in this country, but at times in the past, we have closed the borders in racist fashion. Mm -hmm. Times in the present, too. Mm -hmm. um, explicitly racist in the case of, for instance, the Chinese Exclusion Act or the Muslim ban. 2017. That's right. 19th century, and uh, 21st century. So the racists are generally anti-Semitic and anti-Islamic, which is kind of an interesting combination. They hate Muslims and Jews. I guess it's not that interesting if they're Christian. Makes sense. The alt-right, which is sort of the, the old extreme right in the internet's clothing, couches this as the preservation of European heritage. But it's really just white nationalism. If you want to get into European heritage, European heritage obviously includes both Judaism and Islam. Anybody who has studied European history would know that. Sure. But they'll find arguments to say that that doesn't count. I mean, they have them. Yeah. Have selective interpretation. Yes. <laughs> I referenced the Boogaloo Boys earlier. And this is a very unorganized group of people who originated on messaging boards passing memes around. Yeah, um, they're a bit of an outlier among these groups because it's hard to tell what they actually stand for. And even within their own ranks, there's different, there yeah. are differences between various like members of that group in terms of where they stand on all kinds of things. Yeah, they wear Hawaiian shirts and body armor and carry assault rifles. So the two commonalities are basically bad fashion and <laughs> weapons of war. They're into hating the government and guns. <laughs> Those are the two commonalities. Right. And you don't have to be a racist to hate the government, but it helps. That's what so I'll say about that. They're not one of these groups that's pretending to show up to like enforce social order 
uh, no. quotes, riots. They're there to riot. Yeah, no. So the term bugaloo boy comes from a really stupid pun, basically comes from an old video from the 80s. Breakdancing 2, Electric Boogaloo. Breaking 2. Breaking 2. a movie. Thanks, bud. Breaking 2, Electric Boogaloo. Yeah, and uh, this got turned into through the the alchemy, the magic of, of the, <laughs> the internet. Civil War 2, Electric Boogaloo. These are guys who want to fight Civil War 2 against Absolutely. the government. Yeah, that's what they're about. So I have read quotes from... Gay activist, Boogaloo Boys. They mostly just want to mess things up to say yeah. it in a, like, in a way that will not have us be explicit on Spotify. <laughs> they want to mess things up. They want to mess things up bad. A lot of them skew younger. They're on the internet a lot, social media, and uh, they play online shooters. And a lot of their sort of terminology. They play offline shooters too, it sounds yeah, like. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Hopefully not, but yeah. And then finally, far-right extremists exhibit a propensity for conspiracy theories and conspiratorial thinking. And this is, you know, from way back, all the way back to the anti-Masonic party uh, Hmm. of the 19th century. You know, we have like a a pyramid with an eyeball in it on our $1 bill. Mm -hmm. That's a Masonic symbol. And there's a political party organized... (laughs) Totally. these guys <laughs> and it all ties together like some of these guys think that the fact that there are like immigrants from islamic countries coming into the u.s is part of a conspiracy yeah where the elites of the u.s are trying to like make white people not be the majority in the u.s anymore right which is by the way one of the big reasons why we're seeing an upswell in this type of activity because that's actually happening not that the elites are doing it um exactly but- it's not a conspiracy it's not a conspiracy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, Pete, why are we talking about these guys now? What's making them more dangerous? Well, we're talking about them just because they're so much more prevalent. I mean, they are a relevant part of the culture right now. Yeah. And as you say, more, more dangerous. Yeah. So, they're probably more dangerous because there are more of them. And part mm-hmm. of the reason that there are more of them is that this tool we call the internet makes it so much uh, easier to find and recruit people for these groups, which usually means finding disaffected individuals, people who are unhappy um, with things about their life, which, you know, there have been more and more reasons to be unhappy about yeah. for the, for the average person to be unhappy about their economic situation, mm-hmm. their career options, their healthcare options, you know, over the last 15 to 20 years, it's become worse and worse in this country. So I I mean, worse and worse for anyone who didn't happen to get on a path that got them into the upper middle class. So we got more disaffected individuals. Just, just to begin with. Yeah. Because we've had a lot of economic dislocation. The internet is a great tool for recruiting people. And I have worked in internet marketing and we have this concept called the funnel right? And the funnel works as follows. It's basically very wide at the top and narrow towards the bottom. And finally, you have a spout at the bottom where you get pure customers, right? So you start kind of boiling the ocean, is what we call it, uh, using a data-driven approach. You, ha- you have the entire internet. You, you're, you're just throwing stuff out and seeing 
who you can reel in. And then you get them to demonstrate more and more interest, right? You lead them down the funnel and they send you engagement signals. We want more of this. We want more of this. And you go kind of down the rabbit hole. The top of the funnel for this stuff is basically conspiracy theory material and rumors that are sent over social media, YouTube, and Reddit, sites like that. So somebody's just watching YouTube and the autoplay serves up a video about a, you know, of someone talking about a conspiracy theory. Exactly. That the viewer never would have like sought out, but they find it interesting. Yeah, it could be, for instance, Joe Rogan discussing a conspiracy theory, and maybe he believes it, or maybe he's being taken out of context, and they only mm-hmm. listen to like three minutes of him talking. And that's not even a rare situation. He's one of the most popular you know, media personalities in the world. So Yes, we aspire to be Joe Rogan, except not I'm him. I'm going to say, <laughs> this may be one place where you and I don't feel exactly the same. <laughs> <laughs> that we, magnitude of success. It but. wouldn't <laughs> suck to have a bunch of listeners like he does. Yes. But your point was that these social media sites serve up these conspiracy theory materials. and Yeah, and, and, and just stuff that's divorced of context, right? Right. One thing the internet is, is really good for is just serving you like specific bits and pieces of a larger story that you then never see. Mm-hmm. Right. So, and frequently, frequently that removal of the context is intentional on the part. Absolutely. Of the and for someone who wants to misrepresent something and put it in front of a lot of eyeballs, there's never been a time like now. There've never been tools like what exists now. Yeah. It's really difficult to, it's so much easier to get somebody uh, riled up than it is to get them fact checking, right? Even though there are plenty of fact check sites out there. So that's the top of the funnel. Next level from there is you have your private Facebook groups. You have your forums like 4chan and 8chan, which started as, I think, well, 4chan started as an anime forum, I'm pretty sure. So mostly teenage males uh, talking about anime and video games, devolving into memes. And edgy humor moving into racism and far-right politics. A lot of that stuff got kicked off of 4chan, so we got 8chan. I think that 8chan, <laughs> twice as bad. Twice as bad. <laughs> There's these places everywhere, private message boards. It's like the dark corners of the internet. Then you, you'll, you'll go to a board and you'll start looking at threads and you'll start asking questions. And you'll have more experienced theorists who have absorbed more of the material, like start answering you and you'll engage them. You have your private Facebook groups, your forums, and then now increasingly your encrypted group chat clients. So they have end-to-end encryption, very difficult to break into. Uh, Telegram is a big one of these. I think there's one called Signal as well. There's there's right. a number of them. What, WhatsApp claims to be end-to-end encrypted. That's right, WhatsApp. Although WhatsApp is is owned by Facebook, so... You never know (laughs) as far as that goes. And now once you're in and you're ready to, you're ready to go, some very small fraction of the people on these boards are unstable enough to want to commit an atrocity. And because they came from the internet, they want to demonstrate their devotion to the cause on the internet and inspire others. So now uh, we have the technology for live streaming. 
So Instagram Live, YouTube Live, Facebook Live. And some of these terrorists have successfully live-streamed their terrorist attacks on social media. The main guy I'm thinking of is the Christchurch shooter in New Zealand, 2019. He shot up a mosque and killed, again, into the dozens of people while live-streaming it to Facebook. And it was taken down pretty quickly, but not before, I think, I'm not even sure how many people saw it. I'm sure it was well into the tens or even hundreds of thousands, possibly millions. We got the internet. That's one reason why this phenomenon is growing. COVID-19, really obvious accelerant in terms of decay in trust in government, in terms of decay in our institutions and rule of law. (laughs) If you're already looking for a reason to say that the government is just trying to take away our rights and control us even further, then things like lockdowns fit your narrative. Yeah, they fit to a T, even though there's very good scientific reason to be doing that stuff. But it does play right in to basically your little outpost on the far right that you've set Mm -hmm. up. And like, here is some confirmatory evidence that I've never seen in my entire life and nobody alive has had experience with something like this. This comes around once every hundred years, literally. Last one was in 1919, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And they didn't even have Zoom. I mean, this is no a <laughs> or a live thing, streaming. <laughs> they barely had photography. Yeah, so so this has accelerated the decay of in social and political institutions in the United States and a lot of other places. I think Germany and believe it or not, Greece have both done way better than the U.S. in terms of addressing COVID nineteen. So, yeah, so that has in fact taken the wind out of the sails of of these movements to a certain extent. In those places. Yeah, I think the popularity of Angela Merkel, how do you say her name? Yeah. The Chancellor. Angela, yeah. Angela, Angela Merkel, Merkel has shot back up to like above 90%. It's in the 80s. Yeah. The, okay. High 80s when it, wa- it was low uh, last yeah. year. Yeah. She was on her, on her way out and she is still on her way she out. Is She's still retiring. on her way out, but I wonder <laughs> if she would have made a different decision if her popularity level had been this high when she made that decision but in any I case think so. her handling of the of the covid crisis brought her popularity back up yeah she's been around for a really long time and she's yeah. probably tired fair enough um, but it wasn't good for afd no for wasn't. the right wing party in germany for her popularity to, co- to go back up their their support actually has shrunk from 14% to 9% so it's back under that kind of 10% threshold that we were talking about earlier Dangerously close, but you know, it's it's still a legitimate political party. Their attitude is still acceptable, and in fact, the AFD spearheaded a forty thousand person strong anti mask protest in Berlin in late August. That's very large. I mean, very large. <laughs> it may be that Germany has has done well in fighting COVID, mm-hmm. but um. Clearly, there's still a large percentage or a large number of people who are who are going to not like these measures that they have yeah. to take, and they sort of uh, cross over with the real extremists um, who can hide in a crowd of forty thousand, and then several hundred people will attempt to storm the uh, Bundestag, 
which is the German parliament building. And mm-hmm. that is a powerful symbolic gesture that means something in the context of German history, given what the Nazis did to the Reichstag. <laughs> they stormed the Bundestag as well. Well, it was not the Bundestag at that point in time. It was the Reichstag, and they actually burned it down as part of the plan to gain emergency powers for Adolf Hitler. I see. Yeah. You know, and and like the AFD has a lot of people on the political right who are not neo-Nazis and are not even necessarily racist. They want less immigration to Germany, and they want Germany to leave the European Union. Within the AFD, you certainly have some number of neo-Nazis mm-hmm. <laughs> who may or may not present as such. But see an opportunity to yeah. sow discord and just disrupt everything. Well, they see camouflage is what they see. Mm-hmm. Just like you know, the far-right elements in this country see camouflage in the Republican Party. Absolutely. Yeah. And we should note also that the plot in Michigan against Governor Whitmer started this summer after she adopted an ag- like a very aggressive anti-COVID strategy to fight the outbreak. Michigan was in bad shape, I think, in the April, May, June timeframe. It was, mm-hmm. you know, an epicenter, Detroit in particular. And so she, she adopted, frankly, very strict and also very effective measures. She did, and... A bunch of heavily armed right-wing militia members, I believe the Oath Keepers and maybe some of the group called the Three Percenters, showed up in the State House. That's right. The Michigan State House with their guns. Wearing guns and body armor. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, members of the, the, gover- the state government had to be escorted into their offices. These militia, these right-wing militias have been looking for a reason to do what they want to do for a very long time. And so absolutely governor Whitmer doing what she had to do to fight COVID was their excuse to mobilize. Yeah. A lot of this started in 2016 and 2017. Guess why Trump administration and right-wing media, uh, they both share the credit (laughs) for this (laughs) at a minimum. The president has appeared unconcerned by right-wing violence. He's famously remarked that there were very fine people on both sides of the incident in Charlottesville, both sides being left-wing protesters and neo-Nazis. Not equivalent. And more recently in the debate, he told the Boogaloo boys to stand back and stand by rather than stand down. Right, that would have been better. Or, yeah, stand down, exactly. Uh, At maximum, he has actively promoted it and incorporated it into his political agenda. It is certainly true that under the Trump administration, the Department of Homeland Security, which was created after September 11th, to, in part, to address uh, the terrorist threat within the United States, has deprioritized right-wing extremist violence and threats to focused on left-wing extremists like Antifa and Black Lives Matter that are not similarly violent. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> to put it mildly. <laughs> um, so the first focus of the Department of Homeland Security was on 
the threat of Islamic terrorism in the U.S. That's right. Yeah. So Islamic terrorism stopped being as much of a threat as it was, and right-wing white nationalist terrorism became the true terrorist threat in America. So the DHS said they were going to switch their priority to focusing on that. And I believe last year in 2019, they explicitly said that they were going to focus on some of these right-wing groups. Yeah. But they've done quite the opposite, in fact. They haven't followed through with that. As you just said, they now focus on various uh, left-wing extremists who, again, as you said, are not similarly violent. They're not as violent. No, they're not armed with ass- assault weapons. Black Lives Matter is nonviolent. That's right. Explicitly. Yeah, they, they come from Martin Luther King's tradition. Antifa, well, to whatever extent that's even a movement, an integrated movement, which is debatable. It's kind of like the Boogaloo Boys in that there's a wide spectrum of groups under that umbrella. Mm-hmm. Some are more violent than others, but I think it's primarily nonviolent. Again. Of course. Uh, yeah. You ha- you have had, you know, stores getting looted and stuff like this, but who knows who's doing that? That's correct. And th- their stated approach to what they're trying to achieve is, is nonviolent. That's correct. Yeah. And, uh, you know, last year, the Department of Homeland Security said that part of their new process going forward was to, like, have better relations with local governments, state governments mayors, yeah. et cetera. We've seen the exact opposite with, for example, protests in Portland yeah. where the Trump administration and it should be noted, this guy, Chad Wolf, who heads the Department of Homeland Security and is a Trump appointee and a Trump loyalist. He has not been confirmed by the Senate. Ah, acting. That's right. Yes. Among he's an the acting. many acting heads of departments. Yes. So he's a Trump loyalist. And what what they've done with the protests in Portland has been to send federal troops and federal law enforcement in to a situation that could be better controlled by local law enforcement. Mm-hmm. And the argument is from Trump is, well, you haven't been controlling it, but there's an idea that like in this country, we don't just send feds with machine guns to like, to take care of local issues. Well, yeah, certainly uh, if you are a sovereign citizen, you should not appreciate that in any way, shape, or form, because it's the government encroaching on local rights. Funny how, uh, <laughs> when they're, you know, there to beat up people of color or your political rivals, you seem a lot less concerned all of a sudden. Somehow those two ideas can exist at the same time in those people's minds. <laughs> yeah. Trump is also, of course, the preferred candidate of notable neo-Nazis, like Richard Spencer, David Duke, and many other leading alt-right figures. David Duke is a Klansman. He's old school Mm -hmm. neo-Nazi. Spencer is new school, alt-right. Comes out of Duke, I believe. Both white supremacists, though. Yes, white supremacists. Yes, Richard Spencer is in favor of establishing a white homeland in North America through quote-unquote peaceful ethnic cleansing, whatever that means. He said that? Yeah, he said that. He's on record. Okay. Yeah, cool. So, Nazi. But those guys are all about Trump. And it's not just Trump. I think that the right-wing media complex deserves credit as well. Absolutely. Uh, Fox News being the most mainstream of these. Mm -hmm. But we've also got 
Breitbart. We have One America News Network, a newer one. And of course, many of the most popular politics podcasts. Of course. <laughs> Of course. Thank God we're very unpopular. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Um, yeah, One American News Network is the the rising new kid on the block. I think yes. Trump retweets them all the time. He he likes them a lot. He he has kind of soured on Fox News because they're they're apparently too mainstream. <laughs> right. Like ten percent of the time they'll give an honest poll showing him losing. So he's like Yeah, doesn't like that. He wants pure propaganda, and that uh-huh. is what One American News Network is it is state TV to a greater extent that than Fox News even is. Yeah. So you've got Trump and right wing media. And then finally, demographic anxiety. This is also critically important. The United States was quote unquote founded as a white Christian nation nation and had a white Christian majority for a long time. That is coming to an end at some point in the next 20 to 30 years. Christianity is already kind of on the wane throughout the developed world in Europe and the United States. And the data on this is very clear. Younger people are less religious than older people. They're also less white than older people. And this is priced in the model. This is going to happen pretty much no matter what. It doesn't matter what happens with immigration. Barring some unlikely Spencerian scenario, involving the establishment of a white homeland, this is a done deal. And similarly, immigration is the single biggest political issue in the European Union. Mm -hmm. Because again, younger people in the European Union are a lot less white and a lot less Christian. They are. And there was an event in 2015 that brought the immigration issue to the fore, which was the influx of refugees from Syria. Yes. I believe 2 million came in at one time. Yeah, it was it was a huge number. Many of them settled in Germany, and that is what led to Merkel's popularity tanking. There you go. In part. And then you had Viktor Orban, who built a fence. And yes. Said, you literally aren't coming over this fence. Yeah. Uh, even though he's a member, you know, his nation is a member of the EU who's bound to let immigrants into his country. He yeah, refused. well, they don't have real elections anymore either. So, <laughs> yeah, a lot changed since 2015 um, <laughs> there. <laughs> but so, yeah, immigration became, I don't know if it was the single biggest political issue in the EU in 2014, but after 2 million Syrian refugees yeah. arrived, it came to the forefront. Yeah, to be clear, that's a drop in the bucket when you talk about the entire population of the European Union, but a lot of them went to kind of the same major cities or the same countries, the nice ones. I should say, <laughs> I, I think it was 2 million, but I could be not uh, correct about the exact number. I know it was at least 1 million in a gigantic burst, but it was into the millions, unquestionably. This is a big deal. Demographic anxiety is a, is a big part of why these right-wing groups are rising all around yeah, the world. Yeah, and a basic element of human psychology is that people tend to distrust other people who don't look like them. This is objective. Uh, It's been lab tested and it's a result that happens over and over again. We don't need to see a lab test to know that it's true. (laughs) Being human beings, it represents a tailwind. It's not deterministic. It just makes pluralism and multiculturalism just a little bit harder than it should be. So Pete, 
we're at my favorite part uh, of every show. What's going to happen? What's going to happen? Part where you ask me the hard question about what's going to yeah, happen. Yeah, I want to know what's going to happen. <laughs> well, the presence of these right-wing groups is very important in America right now because, or I should say it's very relevant as regards the election, the presidential election that's going to happen in one month or less at this point, right? Yeah. Three weeks. The reason that it's important is that a lot of these groups have openly stated that if it's not clear, if the it's announced that Trump lost, but for whatever reason they believe that that outcome is not legitimate, or that they believe that more time needs to be given to make sure that that result is believable. Like if there's any question about who won, who wins this election, these right-wing groups are prepared to go to war like for real with guns or like create situations where violence is guaranteed. Yeah. So I, I'm somewhat less worried about this, I think. Yeah, I don't know how worried you need to be. I would just say it's relevant. It is relevant because it's people are talking about it and mm -hmm. it is frightening legitimately. Well, people are talking about it and the groups themselves are talking about what they'll do. And I mean, to some extent, you got to believe that they mean what they say. Yeah. Uh, so here's what I'll say about that. A lot of what they're saying is an attempt to influence the outcome that is still in flight. Right. And here's one way that they could have a concrete influence. They're the Oath Keepers, for example, are talking about being present at polls with guns yes. uh, on election day to, quotes watch to make sure that I don't know that the elections are going in a way that they consider legitimate. No, they want to they turn away minorities is what they want to exactly. do. Exactly. What it really is, is intimidation. This is illegal, or at least it was illegal until the Voting Rights Act was gutted by the Supreme Court, I think seven years ago. I think... Whether it's legal or illegal, we can expect that there are going to be white guys with machine guns standing by polls in swing states. Yeah. And, you know, who knows how much of an effect that will actually have on potential voters. I don't know if anyone's going to see that and literally drive away who would have gone in to vote. But that's what the Oath Keepers are hoping will happen. Yeah, I tend to think that there's not enough of these guys Number one. Number two, not enough of them are going to do it, even to that level. Number three, even fewer are actually committed to violence in the event of an outcome they don't like. And when you go through that funnel, it becomes somewhat less frightening because you're left with a remnant that isn't big enough to cause anything more than sporadic incidents. I really hope you're right. I hope I'm right too. Because I think um, some of these groups see this as just an opportunity to I do... I would agree that it is a recipe for chaos. They want to create chaos. They just fantasize about being able to shoot Antifa or whatever. Yeah, again, like when the chips are down, 90% of these guys are mall ninjas. They're not going to shoot people and they're certainly not going to get shot. It's just not going to happen. 10%, watch out. And even 10% of these guys might be enough to cause real problems and kill people. I'm not playing that down. But when push comes to shove, I don't think that they're organized enough, and I don't think that there are enough of them.
Absolutely. So we'll see. You asked like, <laughs> what's going to happen? So in my yes. opinion, there could be some some bad things that happen around the election yeah. because of what these guys want and what they're what they claim they're prepared to do. Yeah. So after after the election, there's a different answer in the in the years to come. Yeah. So if Trump wins, you know, I would expect recruitment to these groups to increase and legitimization to increase as well. And perhaps some kind of fusion over time with the Republican Party, the NRA and more mainstream groups that will take a long period of time. And I don't think that just two terms of Trump will get it done, but they'll certainly come into the open in a way that has not been the case in this country since I would say the 19th century, something like that. I think you've said it today already, but these groups feel legitimized in a way they never have because of the way Trump talks. Correct. Specifically. Like he, he, he uses them as an asset. He uses them as an asset and they make clothing with things that he said, like quotes of his on it. You know, they feel fully empowered to say whatever they want in the climate where Trump is president. Yes. So, you know, in the next four years, if, if he were to win, he would have nothing to hold him back from doing everything he really wants to do. He doesn't have to win again. I mean, he's talking the third <laughs> term, but I hate even going there. Yeah. The bottom line is that he is very behind in the polls, and we have every reason to think that he's going to lose. That won't solve the problem. And that is because under a Biden administration, business will boom for right-wing media. Fox News isn't going anywhere. One American News Network isn't going anywhere. Trump himself is very likely to go from the White House into media, assuming that he stays out of jail and so on. Mm -hmm. He'll go right into media and start printing money that way. Mm -hmm. All of his kids will have their own show. Exactly. (laughs) On his own network, Trump TV. And I think he's actually talked about this. Like, I I think it's almost certain to happen if he does not remain in in the presidency. Here's the critical point about the long-term future of the United States. In a democracy, you don't need the most people. You need the most votes. And these are two completely different things. Right? So on the one hand, the Democrats, uh, the party of pluralism, and multiculturalism and people of color, younger people, the future, in other words, has the people power. And this will be increasingly the case. The Republican Party, the party of Trump, the party of older Christian whites, painting with a broad brush here, but subjectively correct, is the party of establishing structural barriers. <laughs> voting. So it's going to be people power versus structural and legal and illegal barriers mm-hmm. to voting. Absolutely. And it's it's going to be a struggle over a long period of time. If the Republican Party succeeds in in building more permanent structural barriers, numbers of voters might not matter. I mean, yeah, there's exactly. stuff like gerrymandering and districting that makes, you know, a, a democratic win in a given county nearly impossible. Then there are things like not allowing voting by mail 
not allowing early voting to early votes to be counted before one or two days before the election date, having only one ballot drop off box per county in certain states, right. which equates to just an absurd situation where you got to drive 50 miles to drop off your ballot. If those things, you know, those are structural barriers. And if those remain, then it becomes much less significant, even if that you have more voters. Yeah. Remember where we're coming from as the United States. We're coming from Jim Crow, right? And this was only 60 years ago. My parents and your parents were born in an era prior to the establishment of civil rights mm -hmm. for non-white people in this country. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and in, in many cases, they could not and did not vote. Right. And the GOP is now seemingly stuck in this equilibrium where they feel like they need to fight a rear guard action to try to hold on to the vestiges of that mm -hmm. uh, and hold back the demographic tide, hold back the inevitability. And I, th I think a Trump loss may break that. A Trump win probably won't. Either way, they're going to have to come to terms with it eventually if the United States is to remain a democracy. That's the U.S. In Germany, another important democracy in the West, maybe the second most important Western democracy, actually. Right-wing extremism seems to be a festering but manageable wound so far. So we referenced AFD, Alternative for Deutschland, which is the main sort of right-wing party, mm -hmm. opposition party in the German government. It actually lost support this year. It went from polling 14% to 9% because Merkel has done such a great job right. addressing COVID. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, if the army and police forces are compromised by Nazis, that's obviously a problem, right, Pete? <laughs> it's a big problem, and the size of the problem just became apparent, what, last month? Yeah. But, mm -hmm. I mean, quite a few members of the army and police forces are neo-Nazis, it turns out. Yeah, so the German, the German armed forces has an organization called the KSK, which is some German acronym, for special forces, basically. And the KSK has four fighting companies. And one of these companies was straight up disbanded in June of this year after investigators discovered a stockpile of Nazi memorabilia, weapons, and explosives mm -hmm. on an officer's property. Yeah, and governments don't disband their special forces easily. Yeah. And so hats off to Germany, actually, for doing that. Hats off, but those guys are still around. They're yeah. still well-trained. I'm sure they're under surveillance now, <laughs> and they're, they're being monitored. The leader of military counterintelligence, who I guess is responsible for overseeing the KSK, was fired by the government after this, appropriately, I would say. Yeah, he was um, not accused of being politically aligned with the neo-Nazis or like in on that. He was fired just for basically not catching it going on. Exactly. Yeah. You know, not being sufficiently attentive to the threat, which is very real. Mm -hmm. The interior ministry in Germany thinks that 12,000 people in Germany are ready to commit violent acts for right-wing extremist politics. It's a good number. 
Okay, so 12,000 people ready to commit violent acts for the right-wing politics in Germany. Yeah, this is still a, a tiny minority, but if those 12,000 are coordinated, you have a bigger problem. Yeah, the question is always, is this a seed of something that's growing? Exactly. Just the fact that a number like that, a number that large is there, is of yeah. course, you know, a huge red flag. And and you still have a major minority party that does not necessarily espouse these views openly, but harbors plenty of people who believe these things and has policies in common with them. Mm-hmm. And then you've got Greece, where Greece, yep. you know, Golden Dawn has been declared a criminal organization. They're gone. That's great. In this case, democracy has triumphed and the rule of law has triumphed eventually. Yeah. eventually. But like we were saying, for Golden Dawn to have even gotten that far demonstrates that right-wing policies and thinking have support in Greece. And already, several Golden Dawn underlings, basically, have started new political parties. So, yeah, where you had one big one, now you have a bunch of little ones vying to be the next Golden Dawn. Right. The lesson, really, in Greece and in Germany is that economic and social chaos is the prime breeding ground for organized right-wing extremist politics. Mm -hmm. And I would say that in the USA, we don't have a parliament, right? We only have two parties, and the Republican Party has subsumed the right-wing extremists. The right-wing extremists in this country actually used to be Democrats, more specifically, Southern Democrats. Mm -hmm. This changed in the 60s and 70s with Nixon's Southern strategy and so on. Um, Now it's the Republicans, and they had gone pretty quiet for a while up until Obama's election, right? Trump is in many ways a response to the Obama presidency, I think, that was spearheaded by members of this element. Absolutely. It's interesting to think like it makes sense for right-wing parties to or players, right-wing militias to gain members and gain power under a president that they oppose because they're animated. Yes. But it's interesting that they've only gained more members and become more active under a president whose policies they agree with. In some senses, they're getting what they want from Trump. Sort of. So are they actually getting what they want? They're hearing what they want. And hearing what they want is a big deal to these. They're not actually getting what they want. <laughs> Here, here's an important point, which is that Trump, even if he were competent, which he is not, is not capable of giving them what he wants because so much of what they want is long gone and kind of not coming back. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of almost no matter what happens. Yeah. So they're confined to hearing what they want. And Trump is very, very good at saying what they want to hear. Right. Well, I guess where I was going with that is that where you might have thought that there would be a lull in the activity of right-wing groups during this presidency, there in fact hasn't been. And that sort of suggests that under, if Biden were to win, if Biden does mm-hmm. win, what we're seeing now is just going to get worse. I mean, yeah. Maybe in some ways, but the thing is, like, a Biden administration will actually address this in a real way. That's a good point. Yeah. And there are things the government can do 
to infiltrate and break up these groups and take the air out of these rooms, right? That's the hope. All right, Pete, I think we've done right-wing extremism <laughs> we've throughout done the Western it, man. world. Wow, yeah. what an exciting, thrilling trip. Okay, That was a long show. <laughs> it was, man. I'll talk to you next week, all right? All right, take care.